Welcome to Geek Exploration, the podcast where we may not make an honest buck, but we're 100% American. We don't work for no two-bit Nazis. I'm John Williams. And I'm Ben Robinson. Grab a picture of your best gal, some chewing gum, and you're gonna need a helmet. We're talking the Rocketeer. Holy shit. First try. It went down so smooth and such perfect timing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. I mean, I live here, but I'm excited to be in this booth. So yeah, we're talking high-flying adventure. Pulp action. Yeah. Um, We're talking the Rocketeer. This is... Uh, if you listen to the jetpack episode, I'm sure this will be no surprise that this is very important to me. It is a very special property. Yeah, this was your favorite use in pop culture for jetpacks, wasn't it? I would imagine so. Yeah. Weird thing is, we've been doing this long enough now, and I'm getting old enough to where I'm forgetting things. So, like, I don't really remember any of the jetpacks episode. I may not have gone back and listened to it again after we recorded it. Oh, yeah. If anyone binged listened to everything, I'm sure I've repeated myself about things and probably contradicted myself <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in there because, uh, yeah, I have no idea what I've said in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, after we got out of Clue a couple weeks ago, I uh, I was like, oh, maybe we should do an episode on movie theaters. And you're like, we, <laughs> we did. did. Yep. I'm like, wow. <laughs> wow. That I was mean, big. Clearly, it was a good idea. Yeah, if I had it twice. (laughs) Now, I wish I could just, like, forget the Rocketeer so I could experience it all over again for the first time. Like, your mother-in-law is so lucky that she got a brain injury and forgot everything. (laughs) So now she's all stoked getting to watch all these movies again for the first time. And I'm jealous because I've always wanted to do that. Like, what would it be like to see Superman the movie for the first time? Like, at 38. I mean, that rock's still in my driveway if you want to go whack your head on it real hard. Hey, let's play some Foursquare, man. You can <laughs> you can do super high bouncies on me. What do they call that? Spiking or... No, it's not... Cherry spiking. bomb? Yeah, I think that's cherry right. Cherry bomb, yeah. yeah. My Foursquare lingo is a bit dated. I, don't yeah. know, I haven't played... You know, it's probably been a good 30 years. Yeah, not something I play a lot, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, the Rocketeer, uh, it is both a comic book and a movie man maybe i should have listened to the jetpack episode before because like what if i already talked about like all of these main points probably did what we're going to repeat ourselves a bit on this episode i would imagine because we're talking about something we've already talked about but we'll talk about it more yeah now we're we're talking about rocket packs and mr cliff secord race pilot i guess yeah aspiring race pilot I crop, guess crop duster. Yeah, I guess I guess it'll be um, it'll be important to distinguish the movie versus the comic book because they are fairly different. Like they they open up the same way and they have the same good guy cast of characters, uh, but the stories differ quite a bit. But I mean, Rocketeer just is chock full of everything I love. Like I love this fucking property. Yeah, I've I've loved it since it came out. What was it? Nineteen ninety-two. Uh, Eighty-two was the comic. Oh, sorry, I'm talking about the movie. Movie was ninety-one. Oh, ninety-one. All right, yeah. I've, like I've I've been enamored with this shit. Like I love flying. I love high adventure. I love heroics. I love beautiful women. And Rocketeer fucking has it all. 
I love that jacket. I want that jacket so bad. Yeah, man. I think it's so fucking cool. Although I have a feeling like those jacket and pants and, and those boots, like I don't think I would look nearly as cool oh, no. with those in there. I need to lose some weight before I'd look cool. At least my big ass wouldn't look so big with those like little poofy hips. Yeah, I I was listening to a podcast a week or two ago and they were talking about the the name of those pants and I can't remember what they're called anymore. Are they jodpers? I have no idea. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever heard that word before. I got to look it up real quick. Like they were for pilots, right? Did they have like pads in the butt or something? Like why did they go out on the side? Just- um, were they for pilots? I oh, Well, they, they must be because he's a pilot. But I, I thought like also like uh, people wore them for riding. Oh, maybe. Okay. I got to look it up. Where Also where a padded butt would be handy. Yeah. I don't know, I've just seen, like, Air Force people with them when they have, like, the little, like, well, I guess, I'm imagining someone with, like, a riding crop, which I don't know why an Air Force guy would need a riding crop, but I think they had those. I have no idea. They are Jodpers. Jodpers? Yep, J-O-D-H-P-U-R-S. Wikipedia says Jodpers, in their modern form, are tight-fitting trousers that reach to the ankle, uh, where they end in a snug cuff and are worn primarily for... Horse riding. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, the the term is also used as slang for a type of short riding boot, also called a paddock boot or a jodper boot because they are worn with jodpers. But uh, yeah, sure enough, there they are. There's lots of pictures. All right. Thank you very much, uh, with Gorley and Rust, for bringing <laughs> the term jodpers into my life. But yeah, man, that fucking design. Oh, it's so good. I, I mean, I think that's my favorite thing about the Rocketeer maybe is just, I absolutely love that get up the whole thing, the, the, the jacket with the buttons that, uh, like hides all the straps and stuff mm-hmm. from the, uh, jet pack and the fucking helmet, the big boots. I mean, just everything about it is awesome. Yeah. I wonder what that jacket is made for. Cause it's, it's got that flap that buttons on like all sides. Like what, what is that used for? Like, yeah, I practically. Don't, I don't know, because, like, it, it seems like, because when he has it unbuttoned, like, in the movie, like, it still, like, zips up or buttons up on the inside, too. So it's just like a, it's like that butt flap they have on uh, old-timey pajamas so you could poop without pulling your pants down. Yeah. Except it's it's on your chest. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, I'll, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't ever gone and looked for a jacket like that, but, I mean, that shit's expensive, unless you want a cheap costume one. Outside of the Rocketeer, is it a real type of jacket? Or did, like, maybe Dave Stevens just said, this would look cool, and drew a jacket that didn't exist otherwise? Maybe he was like, I hate drawing straps on a backpack, so I'm going to give him a jacket where they just disappear into the front, and I don't have to draw it anymore. You know, I don't want to look that up. And uh, I'm going <laughs> to encourage our listeners to email us at email at geeksplorationpodcast.com. If you know what that jacket is, call 916-ORC-TURD and tell us. Yeah. Because uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's cool looking. And I mean, that that fucking helmet. Yeah. Like those eyes and that mouth and the, those lines and that fin, like that acts as a rudder. Like that thing is is an instant, like iconic design. And there's something about the design of the entire getup that, that just, I mean, this will be a theme throughout the, the entire project itself, but it just screams like old pulp action fiction like when this is supposed to take place in like the 1930s it's bonkers 
how classic this feels and how right out of that time it feels. Like I, I remember I was talking to somebody not too long ago about the Rocketeer and they, I, I think they were under the assumption that it was an old property, you know, that it was back then with the shadow and fucking oh, and I, Doc Savage. It absolutely feels like it is. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, they were surprised to hear that it, that it was only created in 1982. But before we jump into history, why don't we uh, talk first impressions? Sure, let's do that. Go ahead. Kick it off, Ben. <laughs> so I was thinking <laughs> about this. I have no distinct memory of the first time I saw this movie at all. Like, I know I saw it when I was a kid and I liked it, but like I don't have anything interesting to say about it other than that. So, uh... Do you say interesting other than that? Because I don't know how terribly interesting <laughs> that was. But, uh, you know, so I'm, uh, I, I guess uh, I watched it again um, the other night and my son watched it for the first time. I thought maybe he'd seen it before, but, uh, but when I thought about it, I don't think I've watched it since before he was born. So uh, I, I don't know when he would have seen it. Yeah, unless he was hanging out with me. Yeah, he, he knew the character. Because he'd seen that uh, print that you have of the Rocketeer in uh, your booth. Yeah, right here in my booth. As Ben was talking about his first impression, I glanced over and I was like, oh shit, that's right. I do have a very badass art print uh, by the artist Sean Chen. And uh, it is a gorgeous piece. I'll have to take a picture of it for the for the social media. For the gram. Except yeah. we don't, do we have an Instagram? Yeah. No, oh, I never look at it. <laughs> I listed off every single time. Well, I mean, I just to, zone out when to be fair, I probably haven't posted on that in months. <laughs> it's so bad. Like every once in a while, I'll just get a wild hair and like play catch up. And, and then I just, it's so amazing how difficult it is to just take 10 minutes. Well, I mean, it's not that difficult, but how, how it's amazing how much difficulty I have taking 10 minutes to post on fucking Instagram. It's just, ugh. Yeah, I, I feel you. But, um, uh, but he's, so he was familiar with the Rocketeer as a character, uh, but didn't really know much about it. And so, you know, since I was going to watch the movie, I asked if he wanted to watch it with me, and he was super excited about it. And he fucking loved the movie. I mean, it's just, it's good action. It's it's totally wholesome. Yeah. And uh, and it was fun, like, sitting there watching it with him. And we, we ended up having to break it up into two because I started it at, uh, like, a responsible parent at 9.30 on a Thursday night. Well, yeah, right after dinner. Yeah, and we were, yeah, pretty much. And we were and we were watching it, and my wife came in. She was like, it's 10.30. He has to go to bed. And I was like, oh, really? They don't do anything on the Friday, the week before school is out? He's not going to do anything important at school tomorrow? Yeah. Uh, she did not agree. So we had to pause the movie and... Uh, get back into it yesterday. Yeah. And so he, he was pretty bummed that he had to stop watching the movie and like bugged me as soon as I got home. It's like, you want to watch Rocketeer? Let's watch the Rocketeer. Come on, let's watch it. <laughs> let's finish it. I want to finish it. And, uh, and so he, he really, he really enjoyed it. His favorite part was when the, like the Zeppelin, you know, the, the whole Zeppelin fight when it goes up into fun, the, you know, the, what is it called? Crescendo of the movie? No, that's for music. It's called the, uh, climax, the climax yeah. of the movie. Which, uh, I agree. That whole scene is pretty badass. Well, your son's got good taste, unlike your daughter. Oh, yeah, I couldn't even get her to watch it with me. She, she didn't even try. Wasn't even interested. Should have said it was based on an anime. <laughs> right? Well, then it's live action. And if it's live action based on an anime, she's definitely not in Oh, jeez. 
What about you, John? Um, well, ju- just to piggyback on yours real quick, I showed this movie to my kid um, about, I don't know, at this point, probably like six months ago. And, you know, she's seven and she's a wuss, but that's that's what like this thing being wholesome was so good for. Like it, it was it was a good entry point of action and adventure and Nazi punching for her. Because like I couldn't show her Raiders of the Lost Ark or Temple of Doom or anything like that, that would freak her out. So th- this is a, a good way to ease into those sorts of things. You know, I mean, she's going to be freaked out when she rides the uh, Indiana Jones ride, but yeah. uh, she's riding that. Absolutely. That ride is so badass. Um, but my first impression, uh, sorry, were you going to say something? I was just going to agree on the wholesome thing. Like, you know, Disney insisted that it be like a nice wholesome movie. And uh, honestly, I think it was for the better. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, this movie being racy in any way wouldn't have necessarily improved it. I don't think if it would have made it any better. There's a scene in the comic book that I wish I could have seen Jennifer Connelly in, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. <clears throat> um, but my first impression of this was, of course, the movie. Um, I remember way back in 1991. Yes. Yes. Um, going to the the Cynodomes. Oh, you uh, saw it, it in the theater? Yeah. Oh, Aww. yeah. Um, the... the uh, Century on Greenback in 80. Now it's just called Century Greenback and they revamped the whole thing. It's it's not the same. The Cynodomes were the place. That was the premier location to see a movie when we were kids. That's where I saw Batman. That's where I saw other stuff. Yeah, why am I why am I going right to the Brady Bunch movie? I I don't know. But uh, I remember seeing that as a, as a double feature with Preston as well. That that's where I had my first experience with The Starcade. You know, oh, yeah. th- that, that theater was the shit. In fact, I probably talked about it in our, in our movie theaters episode <laughs> that I can't remember. <laughs> oh boy. Um, but I remember the giant standee for, for Rocketeer, like that art deco poster thing. Oh, the poster for this movie was amazing. Awesome. Um, and then I remember seeing the movie and I feel like, like, uh, for some reason, I feel like when we saw it, it must've been opening weekend. They gave us little Rocketeer figurines where it was like him, like launching into the air and it had like, it had like a heart, like a plastic, like puff of smoke behind him that it would stand on. I I meant to look, uh, look that thing up to see if I'm just crazy or not. Um, but I, I remember it, so it must be true. That's fucking cool. Yeah. They don't give you anything when you go to a movie now. No, fuck no. And I mean, this movie from the start, just, just. It tickled me. Uh, I think that's one of my expressions. I don't know. Uh, but I fucking love this movie so much. Just the, you know, the special effects. Some of it is a little dated. Um, you know, yeah. some, of the, some of the green screen, like model work that they did for the flying sequences. But I don't give a fuck because this movie is pure joy. I mean, you can still tell what's going on. It doesn't necessarily look bad. It just looks obvious. Yeah. And, you know, whatever. It's a movie made in 1991. Deal with it. Yeah. And I mean, the wire work was good. And, you know, the, the shots when it's not composites and stuff like, like that, that it, it all looks good. Like, yeah, the shot around the nightclub where he's flying around the nightclub. Yeah. And shit, that looks fucking great. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my first impression. That's cool. I did. I don't think I, I or I know I did not see this in the theater. Yeah. Like I saw it on VHS later. See, I, I lived for the theaters growing up, like, and, and especially with Preston's family, they're like the biggest movie family I ever knew, you know, like they had a giant collection. Um, so movies were a 
big, big part of my childhood. Um, so let's go back to 1982, uh, where Mr. Dave Stevens, um, was, he, he was previously a, uh, like a storyboard artist. He had worked at, uh, at Hanna-Barbera on, uh, on shows like the Super Friends and I believe Johnny Quest oh, as cool. well. Yeah. And he, he ended up going into film with his storyboards. He was, uh, one of the head storyboard artists on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, neat. Yeah. From there, Michael Jackson saw his storyboard, so he storyboarded out Thriller. Oh, I, I did see that. Yeah. Yeah, he had quite the pedigree. In, uh, in must have been 81, maybe 82, he was called by Pacific Comics to uh, come up with a backstory for their, oh shit, I didn't write down this book in my research, but it was like Star something. Star Slayer. Star Number Slayer, yeah. there it is. Um, and it was it was just a backup gig you know for for a no-name company and he uh he pulled this this character out of his love of uh old pulp fiction so it's it's not any surprise that it feels like it fits in with with a doc savage or a shadow um, because that was very much on purpose he modeled the main character of cliff secord after himself and there, there's a few panels in the book where you can really tell you're like oh yeah i've seen pictures of dave stevens uh, that is that is totally him. Yeah, why not? And like, if you see Dave Stevens, especially when he was younger, before he had facial hair or, or you know age, like he totally looks exactly like you know how you would imagine a character like Cliff Secord would look because he's not an Indiana Jones. He's not rugged, and he he based his uh, he based the design for his friend and mechanic Peavy on Doug Wildey, who was the uh, the creator of Johnny Quest, and he worked with him oh, at really? Hanna Barbera. Yeah. And, um, and then of course, Cliff Secord's girlfriend, Betty. Clearly Betty Page. Yeah. She was based 100% off Betty Page and through the comic book, like he ended up striking up a, a, a good longtime friendship with Betty Page because. Oh no shit. Yeah. By this point she, she was kind of nobody, you know, she was big, ba a big pinup back in the day and there wasn't the resurgence of, of pinup culture. Yeah. Not until like the, I mean, I remember her like being big again in like the mid nineties, maybe when that kind of like that look came back and people started getting into that. I don't know if she was able to make any money off of that. Probably not. Yeah. Like, like the internet, that. you could just find pictures of Betty page. You don't have to pay for them. You what, certainly don't have to pay her for them. What would you say? Would you say it would be, it would be like, like Rob zombie. Like he was, he was into some of the pinup yeah. culture yeah, know, was, like, around that time for sure. Yeah. And I read that the, uh, Design for the the helmet and the suit like was semi inspired by a, an old movie called King of the Rocket Men. Yeah, and, it, and you can kind of see it like with the way the eyes are. Yeah, and was that uh, was that Commando Cody? Maybe. Yeah, because there there I have not actually watched it. I must confess. Me either. There there <laughs> there was like a series of films um, with a with a guy. I believe it was Commando Cody, and not Commander Cody, who's the uh, the musician. He was very much like a Rocket Man. With a with a pointy helmet, but it was back in the old the old black and white serial days. Yeah, Commando Cody, Sky Marshal of the Universe. Yeah, That's yeah, fucking great title. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Uh, but yeah, the the mask on on the King of the Rocket Men thing is reminiscent of both the Rocketeer and kind of like the OG Iron Man. Kind of the same. Oh look. Yeah? yeah, like a big dome helmet with like big eyes and a and he's he's got like a big mouth and instead of like the little you know, great mouth. Oh yeah. Look at that. You can totally see the early rocketeer or I mean the, uh, the inspiration. Yeah. 
Except Rocketeer looks way fucking cooler. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> There's only so much you could do back then. Um, so it became a uh, a five part series in in backups, and uh, later on they put it out as a what they would call an album, which is essentially just a a trade paperback. Yeah, but it had it had weird dimensions. You know, it's it's like magazine format, and I love them. I've got I've got both serieses. Um, and then years later, it uh, they after the I guess I can't say success because spoiler alert, the movie did not do that well and did not gain a sequel, but. It, uh, it did gain a following, and um, years later, I believe it was for Comico, um, he uh, did a sequel series that was uh, Cliff's New York Adventure. Uh, that was a follow-up. He used a lot more uh, a lot more different pencilers, which he would ink over. You know, so so it was. It's a little different, but it is cool to see because there are artists in there like uh, like one of my favorites, Arthur Adams, who you can clearly tell oh, really? when it's his pages. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very clear sometimes with, with a couple of the artists. Um, he uses like the the Hernandez brothers who are famous for uh, loving rockets. Um, and I feel bad I didn't do my research on the other artists because there are a few other names that uh that I would you know be able that I would recognize, but I just don't remember. Um, but both series were really really good. I really enjoy them. I believe I've spoken in. The, I, I mean, I know. Let's see. It was probably in our Ray Bradbury episode and probably a few other episodes where I've talked about that certain point in my life where I yeah. discovered things like Ray Bradbury and then Dave Stevens artwork at the same time as like other artists like Wally Wood and just Dave Stevens brush line is so, I don't like the word, but elegant and gorgeous and smooth and it's just weighted the right way. Like Dave Stevens changed the way I looked at inking comics. I think I've kind of strayed away from the brush for a while now. I've, I've gone in a different direction, and it's fine. But boy, was that a uh, was that a fun time, man! Doing my uh, the the like the commissions I had to do, I tried to use the brush pen briefly. It was like, holy shit, this is hard. Nope, <laughs> <laughs> back to the little micron pens. Yeah, weird nice pressure sensitivity. Yeah, nope, <laughs> did not have the uh, hand dexterity to use that competently. Um, well, good. That makes me feel like I've accomplished something. If I feel like I can use one and be like, all right, practice, <laughs> practice worked. I read the comics years and years ago and I went back to, to read some of them, but I ran out of time. So I read like the first half of the first one and it was like, oh, okay, I vaguely remember this. I don't remember enough to really say much of anything about them <laughs> at all, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like we need to talk about the movie and then we can talk about differences. Yeah, I'd be curious because I don't I don't remember anything. So I'd be curious what the differences are. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess it could be said that since we've mentioned a couple times the uh, the influence of books like Doc Savage and The Shadow is that even though he didn't have the rights to him uh, in the first uh, series, there is a very clear analog of doc savage that shows up and he was the creator of the jetpack and there's a couple of, a couple of people that are trying to tra uh, track down the ro sorry rocket pack um there there's a couple of people that are trying to track it down for him that are clear analogs to a couple of uh, doc savage's little man i i feel bad that i don't remember his crew name or all the all the all the characters in there he's got like a cast of characters that are like yeah. his team there's like five of them, and and uh, and a couple of them show up in this one. There's one that's kind of a thug, 
and one that's uh, that's more of like a proper British gentleman, maybe even French. I think maybe in Doc Savage's crew, he's French. I can't remember. Maybe they call him Frenchy. I don't know. They all have clever nicknames. Um, and then in the second series, there is a very clear shadow character. So both of those characters essentially show up in, uh, in The Rocketeer. Why not? If you're writing a love letter to, you know, old pulp comics and stuff, uh, throw that shit in there. Yeah. And it, and it's great. It just barely skates the line. Like I'm, I'm kind of surprised he didn't get sued with the shadow. Probably because like, like you said, he had a cult following, but I don't think he ever found, like he never found great success with the Rocketeer. Like the Rocketeer is a loved character, but it's, I mean, he ain't Wolverine. He's, you know, he's not Spider-Man. It's true. Superman. I bet a lot of people, like if you have just approached random people on the street and be like, who is this? Uh, I bet, I bet we would be upset with how many people didn't know who the yeah. Rocketeer was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if they do, it's probably the movie. Yeah. And, and that's evidenced by, you know, in the more recent years when IDW got the, uh, the rights to the comic book, um, they were putting out a bunch of comics with different artists and different creators. Cause, uh, Dave Stevens sadly passed away in, uh, in 2008 of, uh, I believe it was leukemia. Um, but so many artists that draw the Rocketeer draw him with his movie jetpack. Yeah, the which double has, barreled. Yeah, one. twin barrels. It's it's sleek as fuck. Like it is yeah, it's, without a doubt a better design than than the original <laughs> one from the comics. That's bizarrely ringed and has like a weird plate thing. Yeah, on like it. a platform that it sits on. Looks yeah. like plywood and purple and I don't know. It's it's weird looking. It's a fun little retro rocket, but uh. But boy, that movie design is great. Like when I draw the Rocketeer, I always draw the movie pack. I mean, and on the, on his costume from the movie, like that was one of the few things they changed. Like otherwise the costume's pretty spot on. I mean, that is the only thing I can think of that, that was changed. Like I know at one point when I was doing a little, little research, Disney really wanted to lose the fin on the top. Yeah, they, they were actually pushing for, like, a NASA-style space helmet. Oh, shit, I didn't hear that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they were pushing for, like, a spaceman helmet for him. Uh, they also wanted, originally, to, like, move it up to modern day, which for then would be, like, the early 90s. And there was a lot of pushback on it. Uh, but the uh, the film's director... Joe Johnston. Yeah, the, yeah, the film's director, Joe Johnston, uh, basically said... If we don't keep the helmet, I quit. Yeah, he threatened to walk. Yeah, he's like, like he had, like he wanted to keep the integrity of the character and the design, and like he must have really loved the property because he was having no shit from Disney, which you know, threatening to walk from Disney is uh, that's pretty big. That's pretty wild. I mean, he's not Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and and back then, uh, I mean, let's let's get right into it. It's fucking movie time. Oh, that's what everybody came to hear anyway. They don't want to hear our, our half-baked impressions on, on a comic book they've never read anyway. But seriously, go read that fucking comic. They're great. Yeah, Joe Johnston, at that point, had only directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Like, that was his only feature film. And, uh, and I mean, this oh, was... I, I didn't know he did that. Yeah, this, this wasn't a giant project. You know, I think originally they were given... A, uh, a budget of, I think it was $35 million. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not big. But apparently, uh, once the dailies started coming in, Disney was uh, was impressed. So they ended up increasing the budget. 
I, I guess the, the, their original thought on it was they wanted to do it as like a low budget black and white throwback to the old pulp films. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess it was too awesome. And they decided to throw <laughs> more money at it and make it in color, which I'm glad they did. A lot of that came from the early days of them trying to shop the movie around, I think as early as uh, 1986. Um, Dave Stevens did team up with uh, with Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, and um, and they started developing the project. They brought in, uh, shit, who was it? William Deere, I believe was his name. Um, and he was going to direct the picture, and they'd you know, gone through a, a bunch of different drafts, and he eventually dropped out, but he still got a writing credit. And yeah, they wanted to do it super low budget, do it super throwback. Eventually, it found its home at uh, at Disney and with uh, with Touchstone Pictures, and then uh, you know they brought on Joe Johnston, and the rest is history. I guess I, <laughs> that was such a shitty little history segment because I totally forgot that uh, one thing that I saw that caught my eye was Dave Stevens initially. Sorry, this was in 1986 before Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo um, optioned the character for film to uh, Steve Miner, who at that point was the creator. And I believe the director of the first two Friday the 13th movies. Yeah, and I think he did House as well. Oh, did he? Which I don't know if I ever saw, but I remember that cover of like mm-hmm. the disembodied hand ringing the doorbell from the video store when I was a kid, for sure. I, I saw the, the, the both House movies, one and two, um, when, when we were young with Preston, of course. Those movies were not good but they were great. <laughs> ah, like, I love those. That flicks. kind of horror movie. Yeah. I'm curious. I guess that like that ended up getting it didn't work out because like where he wanted to take the Rocketeer character was too far from where Stevens wanted it. Yeah. He, he was actually the one that suggested moving it up into modern times. Looking at Friday the 13th and stuff like House, like what would he have done with the Rocketeer? Like that would have been. I mean, apparently it was a direction that they didn't want to go in, but yeah. what was that direction? I'd be really curious yeah. to hear the pitch. Oh, I wonder if a script exists. Like, was it gory? Like, did, did it have like, uh, like, was it horror-y Rocketeer? Because what a weird take that would be. I mean, I, I wonder if it would have had a little nudity, the way he was talking about it. Yeah. So eventually... Uh, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo got their script written. I heard that over the uh, over the four years that they were writing it, they were fired and rehired like three times. <laughs> By who? By Disney? Apparently. And then like <laughs> like elements of their script that were there from like the beginning that like got them fired, like ended up in the finished project. I don't I don't know exactly how all of that happened, but I but I heard that little snippet and I thought it was funny. I wonder if they were just like super insistent like this is like ah, can we change this and they're like fuck you no that stays in and yeah. they're like all right you're fired because <laughs> disney i guess was pretty explicit about the fact that they wanted it to be like a, a wholesome kids movie yeah or like not, not not a kids movie but like something you could watch with your kids yeah, family friendly and yeah, they didn't want any any racy stuff or anything controversial in it which is interesting because uh they kill quite a few people in this movie for a disney movie yeah, they don't they don't do it with blood and gore. No, yeah, it's not graphic. But like I I was keeping like a loose count when I was watching it. Uh I think it's somewhere between like 16 and 22 people die in this oh, movie. That's that's not small. You know, I, I I'm assuming like 6 to maybe 12 Nazis die. like at the end in that big gunfight. 
Yeah. Like they'd mow down with quite the feds a few, and yeah. the mob. They mowed down quite a few Nazis, but uh, I mean, there's four named characters that get killed or four like characters with lines. Yeah. Let's see. Lothar. Yep. Neville Sinclair. Um, uh, Bigelow. Yep. And, uh, the fucking Otis. guy. Is that the guy that, the, the fencing guy? The fencing guy? Yeah, and when they're making the movie and Neville Sinclair stabs him for real. Oh, no, I didn't know if he oh, died I, or not. Oh, yeah, No, yeah. it's the guy that gets folded in half. Oh, geez, the, yeah. In the hospital, yeah, the dude that stashed the jetpack. Plus, there was, uh, like, the four-man crew of the airship. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, the gangster dude at the beginning that was shooting out of the back of the car. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was possibly one of the cops like they were shooting at the cops and then the cops like veer off and crash so I don't oh know that's if they right shot one of the cops that was driving or a cop that was driving or what but at least that many people so that's that's pretty high body count for a disney movie yeah yeah like that that's going into like indiana jones territory yeah so uh i mean at least they left that in there like a lot of gunplay for a, a wholesome family flick yeah i mean Fuck, they, I mean, they had swastikas there, so there, there better be some killing. Most of the people murdered were Nazis, so, you know, fuck them. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the right <laughs> thing to do with Nazis in a movie. Yeah. Um, so in, in the title role, we had Billy Campbell, who was a relative unknown. He'd had some, uh, some TV credits, but I, uh, I heard that the studio wanted such names as uh, Emilio Estevez or Kurt Russell. Matthew Modine, Kevin Costner, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio said that he was, uh, that it was what, something like he was glad that he did not get the role. Um, and Bill Paxton, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Bill Paxton claims to have been, uh, close to getting the role. Yeah. And I guess when they were writing it, they were like envisioning Johnny Depp. Oh yeah. But I guess he was, uh, busy doing Edward Scissorhands or something. He was busy being Johnny Depp, how he loved him, where he would do a really good job in a very select number of movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a hard time picturing Johnny Depp in this role. Or uh, like a lot of those guys. I, I think they made a, a good call with Billy Campbell. Yeah, like, can you imagine fucking Kevin Costner or Kurt Russell? Weird. Wouldn't they be too old? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's no real reason that he needs to be young, other than that's what I'm used to seeing. But well, I mean, if we got a 19 year old Jennifer Connelly playing his girlfriend, I mean, she's 19. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all in the up and up, I guess. There was a couple other people they had in mind for that role eventually, originally that were not 19 years old, but I don't remember who they were. So that was a good anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it wouldn't have been as weird <laughs> if it was. Uh, you know, Kurt Russell dating one of them. Oh, you're talking about the role of Jenny. Yes. Oh, okay. I, th- I thought you were like, oh, yeah, there were some more people up for Cliff, but eh, no. who knows? Well, I mean, Jennifer Connelly, smoking hot. She is so gorgeous. And she's it's like that that wholesome beauty. Oh, yeah. You know, she, the, it, it very much the girl next door thing. She's not like, you know, a super sexy model look. She's just a... a gorgeous woman yeah she still she still had like like uh like you know some little pudgy cheeks you know, yeah and, and and like uh you know jennifer Connolly for years just had these like really thick eyebrows like she yeah. looked like a normal natural woman yeah absolutely so th- this is one of the changes that uh that disney made to wholesome it up a little bit was they turned jenny from uh from the you know, nude model, uh, Betty 
into a uh, an aspiring actress, young woman. And um, she did such a good job as as that, like, you know, trying out for roles and not getting it because some producer, you know, knew this one girl. So this shitty actress gets this role with Neville Sinclair. And you can really feel for her when she's disappointed with with yeah. Cliff. You know, like he's he's got his own thing going on and he's not. I mean, he ain't treating her right. He doesn't deserve her. And then, uh, of course, speaking of Neville Sinclair, we have the legend himself right off of playing uh playing james bond for two movies we had timothy dalton oh and he did such a fucking good job in this movie he is such an amazing fucking actor i love that dude so much he does such a good job with like you know hamming it up as the you know the errol flynn type actor in it too like he just he kills it yeah and the the I, I, I guess it's not a funny thing, but I guess, you know, because you're supposed to be like an, you know, an Errol Flynn analog. And apparently w- at the time when this was when this was written, Errol Flynn was rumored to be a Nazi spy yep. or to have been a Nazi spy. Yeah, I think there was a book that came out in 1985 that posited that, you know, yeah. that that, uh, that pushed for that that narrative. I guess since then, uh, it was like debunked and looked like it sounds made a bunch of shit up that was in there and like fabricated evidence. <laughs> It was very much, you know, playing to that. I mean, and it also had like a dude playing W.C. Fields in there, uh, sexually harassing Jenny. And uh, what's his name? Spruce Goose Dude. Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, yes. Yeah. You know, so it was like very much based in real life 1938, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a feeling from from what I've heard about Howard Hughes, I think they probably changed his character up quite a bit because he didn't seem like... Such a weird hermit. Yeah, he was like a recluse that like saved his urine and toenail clippings or some shit. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, toenail like, clippings, that's not that weird. But, <laughs> but urine, I, I mean, come on, man. I just recently like read read a, a story about like his final, you know, couple of decades and like, man, like his descent into madness was pretty wild. But I mean, whatever. He was played by Terry O'Quinn, did a really good job. And they, so that was one of the big changes in this, that rather than trying to introduce a character like Doc Savage, they, uh, they had Howard Hughes be the inventor of the rocket pack, which makes sense. Yeah. I I mean, it kind of grounded it in, in real life a little bit, which I thought was cool. And I, I thought it's a good decision. Yeah. And they had a really cool cartoon sequence that was, that yeah. totally reminded me of like the Fleischer cartoons and like the Fleischer Superman cartoons. Yeah. That was Odin's like second favorite part was <laughs> the propaganda film. Yeah. It was wild. And the music in that was great. I liked that they kept the German simple enough that I don't, that I, that I knew what it was saying. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, let's see. Rounding out the characters, we had Peavy, played by the legendary Alan Arkin. Yeah, I guess Lloyd Bridges turned it down. Oh, shit. I could have seen Lloyd Bridges in that role. Yeah, because Alan Arkin doesn't really look like Peavy, and the way he's written, or, or you know what? I bet the way he's written would have matched the comic book, but the way Alan Arkin plays it, just just like his dry delivery and, and you know, like, changed it quite a bit like yeah. he's, he's a different pv than the one of the comic books but i i love alan arkin in this role he is so great yeah yeah he's like the voice of reason yeah and you know just like his his little alan arkinisms just like chewing gum ain't gonna keep your butt in the air or, or you know or or even the way how you know cliff has this superstition of like putting chewing gum on on the back of his his uh his plane 
And, you know, he's giving him shit about that. And then, but then like, I love the, the little detail that as Cliff is taking off in the beginning, you see PV grab the gum it, like, off the throws back. it on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And then sure enough, wow, Cliff, uh, Cliff crashes the, well, gets shot and crashes the plane. Um, Good job, PV. Yeah. Have we, have we talked story details? Nope. Enough at all? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've so, talked about it at all. The, uh, the comic book like the, uh, or sorry, the comic book and the movie both start out with uh, gangsters having stolen a rocket pack and they they end up uh, being chased by the police into the hangar of Cliff Secord, and they hide it in his plane. He finds it, straps it on. That is how they start. In the comic book, there's no Neville Sinclair at all. No. There's no Nazis. It's nothing. It's, it's a stolen jetpack. Yep. It's Doc Savage, or quote unquote, Doc Savage, uh, trying to get his pack back. And, and gangsters. And that plane uh, that they did for the movie looks... A lot like the one from the comic, and it is a weird, stubby-looking plane. Like when he's taxiing out to the runway with like his, he's got that little bubble that's like just big enough for his head sticking up, and it looks so silly. I'm like, can he even see the runway in front of him? Yeah, like it, and it takes a crew that has to put that piece <laughs> on top of him yeah. when he's sitting in the plane. It's such a w- funny-looking plane. What was it called? Was it was it the GB or was it the BG? I can't remember. I don't. No. One of those, One maybe. Of the, yeah. Those both sound like they could be correct. <laughs> so the movie's plot follows Cliff as he finds a rocket pack. The government is trying to track it down. Gangsters are trying to track it down. Nazis are trying to track it down. Yeah, this movie has a lot of antagonists in it. Yeah. Like, there is a lot going on in this movie, and, and like a lesser movie would crumble under such forces, but <laughs> like they tie it together so well. Because you've got the feds, you've got... Neville Sinclair, you've got the mob, and they're all kind of intertwined a little bit. Yeah. And Nazis eventually. But like everyone's got it out for Cliff. Yeah, and and he's such he's such an innocent everyman. Yeah. Oh, you've got Bigelow, who's kind of an antagonist. Like he's busting their balls and charging them a bunch of money and threatening to kick them out. That's true. Like that's the reason he uses the pack. They've got to pay that three hundred dollar fuel bill. Yeah. And in, in the comic book and the movie, he first straps on that rocket to go save his friend who's, uh, who's filling in for him. But a difference between the comic book and the movie is uh, I think Disney lightened it up a little bit. Because in the comic book, his buddy who's flying the plane to keep him from getting fired is a drunk. He's drunk, yeah. Yeah. He, he, like in the opening page, he's, like get, he's complaining about getting his light, pilot's license taken away because they found a bottle. He's like, I wasn't even drinking. Yeah. Yeah, so he's hammered, so Cliff has to go and take off. And and boy, in the comic book, he does not succeed quite as well as in the movie. I mean, the movie, they still have him being a totally imperfect character. Yeah. I love how they have him, like, falling off the plane and then having to, like, reignite the rocket to, to you know, move back back up to where the plane is. When his head, like, bursts through the floor at first <laughs> yeah. and, like, the, the control stick comes off. <laughs> <laughs> but in the comic book, he, like, accidentally flies, like, straight into the wing and it just, like, slams into his chest and it, you know, he's, like, bleeding out of his mask. It, it, oh, shit. It was a very yeah. unsuccessful, uh, first attempt um but you know he saves malcolm that's his name it just came to me and uh thus the rocketeer is born yep that's how it happened so from there you know cliff 
is trying to win back his girlfriend, trying to gain her trust. He he, he uh, tells her that he's the Rocketeer, and I love her line, the Rocket who? Yes, oh. no idea who he is. That scene, too, that nightclub is fucking rad. Oh, the South Seas Club? Yeah. Yeah. Man, they got, like, the big clam that people come walking out of, and, I mean, just that whole place is awesome like like i've never been to any place like that in my life probably because it doesn't exist no it did back then though like those were old hollywood land clubs but that 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 whole set is just amazing i love it yeah and uh oh shit am i skipping ahead is that oh that is when he says he's the rocketeer oops i i meant to uh touch on on when she was when he visited the movie set which was which was a great scene like just out of a fucking errol flynn swashbuckling movie like and there and the sword fighting in that in that is great just like the old flicks and um and neville sinclair overhears that he has the rocket and then that's when you're like oh shit that's why he takes jenny to the south sea club yep um and uh do you did you recognize who the singer is at the south seas club I did not. Oh, shit. That is none other than, I don't remember her real name, Jan from The Office. Oh, no shit? Yeah. She's got a gorgeous voice. Yeah. And I love the music in that scene. The music in this whole movie is fucking great. Yep. James Horner did the score for this, and he uh, he's living up to his legendary reputation. He also did uh, the score for Captain America, the first Avenger, which was also... Uh, directed by Joe Johnson. Correct. So, like, they, uh, apparently he, he kind of liked that feel and, uh, wanted to do it again. Yeah, and James Horner's just one of those names where, like, you know, if, if, when I used to pay attention to the movie trivia Schmodown, there would be, like, a composer's category. And it, the answer was always, like, John Williams, James Horner, or Jerry Goldsmith. Like, <laughs> like it, it was those three names. So, if, so if I don't actually know who composed something. Cause I, I think I have a pretty good idea of most of John Williams. Yeah. Work. He's pretty distinctive. Yeah. Danny Elfman, you know, um, Hans Zimmer nowadays, you know, so if I don't know them and they're from like the eighties, especially it's, it's gotta be Jerry Goldsmith or James Horner. 50, <laughs> 50 chance. Yeah. And James Horner goes back with, uh, James Cameron also like he scored aliens. Oh shit. Yeah, and and then they didn't work together for years because they they had a big falling out with like the final Oh wait, or no, maybe it was Terminator where they had a falling out cuz like I think uh James Cameron like changed the edit of the film like at the last second and you know his score was timed to it and he's just like I need you to I need you to change this and it was like an unrealistic deadline so they didn't work together for years and sounds like James Cameron. Yeah. Until I think aliens. No, because that wasn't that many years. No, that was that was actually very soon thereafter. Yeah, I wonder. It was like almost his next film. (laughs) I wonder if then it was the difference between aliens and Titanic. That would be much longer. Yeah. Oh, and well, yeah. I mean, before they get to the South Seas Club, Cliff comes home to find uh, Lothar. Lothar, you know, roughing up Peavy. And then the feds show up and just fucking annihilate their house. <laughs> like just, I mean, like ten guys with machine guns just unloading into the fucking house. And somehow, like all that happens is Lothar's hat gets shot off. <laughs> yeah, no shit. He's a <laughs> giant man who's shooting back out with like two handguns, <laughs> one in each hand, just fucking popping it off. And they're just, you know, Swiss cheesing their house. And he and he's perfectly fine. 
is a lucky man. An ugly, but lucky man. Yeah, and that that, uh, that character was played by, uh, let's see, his name was like Ronald Tiny Ron Taylor. And I, I'm assuming he had a lot of makeup on because he's not that ugly oh, in real life. Oh, right? yeah. No, no, no. Like th- this, uh, this character came from the second series of comic books and he was based on the, uh, the actor Rondo, uh, Rondo Hatton, um, from the series, the creeper, um, back in, in old black and white films, you know, where, where this guy actually had, um, shit. What was the name of the disease? I can look it up real quick. It was, um, Ugly-itis. No, acromegaly, where, like, the soft tissue in your face keeps growing. Oh, weird. Yeah, so, I mean, here's a picture of the man himself. Oh, I've seen that guy before. Yeah, in The Rocketeer. Oh, like, oh. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. No. They they, they used extensive prosthetics to to make him look virtually indistinguishable, at least in stills. I've heard a lot of people give shit to that makeup job. Like, I know there was, there's one part when he's like, where is it? The rocket. Where his mouth doesn't move supernaturally. Yeah. But other than that, like, I think the makeup looks fucking great. I think the makeup looks great. There is, some, like, him talking is kind of off. Yeah, but thankfully he only does it, like, once. Yeah, and, you know, he's just some big old goon. I don't expect him to, like, you know, quote Shakespeare or anything. Yeah. Yeah, so he's Neville Sinclair's main henchman, because Neville Sinclair is tied up with the mob you know he's paying the mob to do that and you don't really know where his allegiances lie and then you find out later when he takes jenny home and she finds like a secret communications room with a radio you know that he's a fucking nazi well yeah and before that he's just really rapey <laughs> oh, yeah. like, he's just a fucking creep and uh and it's very rewarding to uh have her just smash him right over the head in classic, like, pulp fashion, like, vase to the head, knocked out. Yeah, just gone. Yeah. <laughs> just slumps that. over. <laughs> it's perfect. You know, the feds catch him, take him to Howard Hughes. Basically, it all builds up to the big uh, rescue Jenny scene, the climax of the movie, where it gets revealed that Neville Sinclair's a Nazi and the mob turns against him, and uh, Nazis come running out. Like he yells something, and just all these Nazi troops <laughs> yeah, come yeah. running out. They're of the- just there, <laughs> and then a zeppelin pops out from yeah. behind a building, you know, with with a giant swastika on it. Yeah, no shit, right? That wasn't exactly <laughs> subtle flying over uh, Los Angeles up to that. I mean, point. I guess they didn't have security cams back then. It's late. It's dark. Yeah, no one's looking up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's goofy and pulpy, and uh, I love it. Like, I'm yeah. I'm perfectly fine not questioning why any of that makes sense. Yeah, and one thing that I love about that scene, especially, is like. The Rocketeer is known for iconic images. Like there, there's like there's an an image from the comic books of him like shooting up, you know, straight arms straight back, on, yeah. yeah. And then there's an image of him like with with like it's almost like he's poised, looking for for somewhere with like a spotlight on him. Yeah, something that's going to happen. And he's got his uh, his Mauser up in the air and like one hand for you know he's just ready to spring to action. And they, we got one of those iconic shots yeah. in that scene. Once he flies to the roof of the, it looks like a Capitol building. What is it, like an observatory or but something? Yeah, it's the observatory there. Okay. On, on the, like up in the hills of LA. I can't remember what it's called. But oh, yeah. okay. Is it the it's, Griffith it's a, Observatory? Yes. Yeah, it's oh, a real right. place. Yeah. And and he, he has like his arm like crossed across his chest with like a Mauser in his hand. He looks up. There's like, an American flag oh, floating in the wind behind him. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, and then he shot. takes off to go up to that Zeppelin. Where he uh, 
I mean, we could do a play-by-play if we want. <laughs> we kind of have. I mean, we've skipped a few parts, so yeah. it's still worth the, watching. The other shot from that scene that I really like is when Valentine and uh, one of the FBI agents, they're like shooting at Nazis and they kind of like look at each other and just like, like, all right, like just exchange a knowing glance. Yeah. Like, like, all right. Oh, we're on the we're, same team today. Yeah, we're on the same side. <laughs> Weird. And the Zeppelin fight is awesome as well. He gets up to the top fucking, uh, has a little fist fight with Lothar. Yeah. He's like strapped in. Yeah. Yeah. Lothar, like, like carabinered himself yeah. to the Zeppelin, which, you know, realism aside up to this point, if you're going to get in a fist fight on top of a Zeppelin and you have the option to tying off, you should do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it sure works out for him because he gets the, gets knocked off the Zeppelin, but Boy, he he sure is uh, still strapped to it, so he could whack his head on the uh, yeah, bust through the window. <laughs> yeah, there's Nazi punching, people flying out of windows, and uh, and the chewing gum paying off. Yeah, yeah, PV had stuck some chewing gum to the rocket pack earlier when a bullet uh, had grazed it or punctured it uh, to keep a a gas leak from uh, from making him explode into a fireball. So uh, Cliff gets into that uh, into that Zeppelin and passes the uh, the rocket pack to Neville Sinclair, pushes that gum as- aside ever so slightly, and uh, Neville Sinclair goes to take off and uh, makes us uh, realize why Hollywood is called Hollywood and not Hollywood Land. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's historically accurate. Yeah. Yeah, so whenever I, like, I've done a couple Rocketeer prints now, and he's always flying over the hills, and it says Hollywood Land. I like that. But, boy, Neville Sinclair sure does go up into a ball of flames and blow up that land. Yeah, he's fucked. Yeah. Super dead. Um, And they get rescued by a, what are those things called? Like a... A heliplane? Gyrocopter. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And in ridiculous pulp fashion. And then uh, (laughs) a little wrap-up, everything's good. He gets his plane... Woohoo! Yeah, it's just uh, it's a good, good fun adventure movie. Yeah, want to take a break? Yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll be back. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle from the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. Welcome back, Ben. Hey, John. Hi. Um, so one thing I would like to talk about before we uh, we move on to structure is the special effects. Okay, yeah. We touched on it earlier, but um, I, I let's see. When we were originally prepping for this episode a few weeks back when we, when we thought we were going to do it. Yeah. Um, before Clue popped up, I was watching a, a little behind-the-scenes documentary because, I mean, there there aren't a whole lot of resources on this. No, there's not. It It's not even a cult classic. I mean, it, I don't know if it really quite... I'm not sure if it counts as one. It's like, it's a diamond in the rough, I think, is is where I'd put it. Yeah, and, and it's, it's almost like cult classics need to have some sort of... Um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like cult classics do better when they, when they are more risque or they take more chances or they, they, yeah. they appeal to a more, um, or a less family friendly side or a more niche demographic of some sort, as opposed to, cause Rocketeer should have pretty broad appeal. I don't, yeah. I don't get it. It's a good movie. It's just a fun adventure flick. Yeah. And when they finally put it out on Blu-ray and you know, when it hit its, uh, its 20 year anniversary, there just weren't really spe- uh, special features at all. Like I bought the Blu-ray and it, it wasn't even that easy to find and there just isn't a lot on it. But I did see a, uh, a little featurette that I found on YouTube where they did those flying scenes, the ones that weren't, that weren't wires. They did them with, uh, with stop motion. Yeah. And, and with like a, a model. Little, like a little model. I've, I've seen some little clips of that. Yeah. They have like a little like scale armature model that looks fantastic. I mean, and as from watching the movie, I wouldn't have guessed like the, it doesn't look like a model. Like it, it looks like it's been pasted in, obviously like yeah. the, the green screen effect is not that great, but my assumption if it's, if you'd asked me would have been that it was like wire work that was done in front of a green screen. Yeah. Like Superman or something. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it all, it all looks realistic because I mean, it is real. Um, and everything moves so fast that, yeah, that you true. know, it's you, you don't really have time to sit there and linger, you know, like if, if they had like a, a slow, like Superman and Lois flight scene with Jenny and Cliff, you know, like you, it, it might stand, well, it might stand out because Jenny, but, <laughs> you know, it, it, um, it looked really good to me. And, and one thing that, uh, that always stood out to me that I, I, I should have gone back and watched, um, was the, another Michael Jackson tie in here. Weird. Um, on the Moonwalker movie where they have like this stop motion sequence where Michael Jackson is like a rabbit and it's, it's yeah, uh, to oh, the yeah. speed demon sequence. Yeah. There's a point where he puts on a jetpack and he flies like through the clouds at night and it looks so much like Rocketeer to me. I remember the first time I saw it when I was younger, just being like, holy crap, like this, this looks just like, like, you know, my, my little kid brain was like, did they just use the Rocketeer sequence for that? But you know course that didn't happen but i wouldn't be shocked if uh if michael jackson hired the same people to to do that thing i mean i don't know what year it came out but i wonder what came first because i believe rocketeer used ilm for that oh really and um and i don't i mean i wouldn't be surprised if michael jackson went to the authorities yeah i mean ilm was the spot for that yeah that was that was they were the king of the hill at that point and this was just pre-jurassic park so you probably had some phil Tippett in there doing some uh some stop motion on there i really really loved the special effects in this not perfect but they are great yeah no i i think they're perfectly serviceable i mean there's nothing like like you said earlier the wire works good they don't have very many like superman like sequences where you're like flying along next to him The, the only one i could think of is near the beginning one of his early flights when he's like flying next to the airplane and like yeah and salutes him that that is the that's one of the only ones i can think of where you're like following along slowly with him and he's not zipping by yeah and and that probably is one of the more janky looking ones too but i i love that like that that's such a testament to the whole everyman aspect of it where like he goes and salutes and and whacks the the ignition switch yeah when he's doing it and then yeah falls and then has to fire it back up (laughs) I remember 
doing that as a kid, just like, like that was a part of my pretending to be the rocketeer routine. Like you're, you're flying through shit and then it cuts out and then you're falling towards the ground. You, you know, light up right before you hit. I mean, I, I guess it's kind of a branch of special effects, but the, uh, other, other than the club scene, the sets in this are pretty good too. Like they, they built that dog shaped diner. Or at least a you know a reasonable facsimile of it. Yeah, a replica of it. Yeah, because that thing exists in real life. The Bulldog Diner. Oh, does it really? Yeah. Oh, where's that at? Uh shit. Let I me mean, look I it up it's in L.A. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I remember going to Chubby's, the uh, the burger joint, uh, as a kid, and they had like wallpaper with that on it. But yeah, the Bulldog Diner is a real place. Oh no, shit! That's awesome. Can you really climb up into the head and look out the eyes like windows? Because that's I, neat. I would <laughs> bet. Let me see. Okay, yeah. It was in Los Angeles. Oh, that's fucking cool. 1931 picture right there. That is so awesome. I'm so glad that was a real place. Yeah. I imagine it's gone now. Um, Let's see. Because jerks. I'm surprised nobody's restored it. Yeah, right? That's awesome. If I was driving by and I had my option of places to eat and there was a giant diner or a diner shaped like a giant bulldog, that would probably be where I'd go. It's a very 30s through 50s roadside attraction kind of thing. Yeah. I like that. Okay, so apparently it still exists. Uh, Bobby Green of the 1933 group, which owns Idle Hour, purchased it and had it carefully disassembled, moved, and rebuilt at the NoHo property. I don't know where that is. Weird. It is a much different thing now. It's not It's not a diner, and it doesn't live like the, like the one in the Rocketeer, I don't believe. But they had that in the comic book, too. Yeah. So totally. it, it was definitely based on a real place. Yeah, and they had a bulldog that farted in the comic book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fed him beef jerky. <laughs> Wanted to prank Millie. And man, Millie on page two, whacking him in the head with, with a, a frying fucking pan. cast iron pan. Jeez. Right. Oh man, that is uh, pretty aggressive. Yeah, if I were Cliff, I also would have sent a kid in there to to tell Millie to give me free ice cream and feed the dog a bunch of beef jerky <laughs> so he farts all over the place. <laughs> I guess it's time for structure. I feel like we've covered it thoroughly, if if not well. Yeah, well, that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talked about it. Um, if you're still here, my apologies and my thanks. Um, so, favorite use in pop culture? Uh, I have no idea. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not even sure I, I can think of any uses in pop culture. Like, it's, it looks like you have one for you. <laughs> so, that's, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you, John. Well, but, no, I'm sitting here thinking about all the different things that there are that we didn't talk about at all. So, I could just take this segment and talk about uses in pop culture and then lead to my favorite. Yeah, like, I'm sure there's a Rocketeer video game. Yes. I never played it, so that can't be my favorite use. Uh, there's there, probably some cool Rocketeer toys, but... I never had them, so that there can't were, be mine. There were a lot of not cool Rocketeer toys. I've got one that's, I think it's a NECA toy that is fantastic. Say, and how do you I have a not it. cool Rocketeer toy? Like, you just make an action figure of the Rocketeer, bam, it's N cool. No, you make it with no joints, and it's like plastic, and it sort of stands with its hands on its hips, so you can't even make him look like he's flying. I've got that. And it's not cool. It's fucking lame. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, there was that toy that we got when we watched the movie. I've got a Pizza Hut cup 
that is, you know, a movie tie-in, but like the top, like, or sorry, like the body of the cup has like the, the eyes and the mouth. And then the top of the cup has the fin that goes back. So it's the top of the helmet. That's fucking rad. Yeah, it's great. I love that cup. Um, The Nintendo game, I remember being very frustrating. The the Nintendo game and the Super Nintendo game, I don't think they were exact replicas of each other, just with 8 and 16 bits. But I remember playing both of them at separate times and just not being able to get far. And if I can't get into a game right away, it's like a book. If I can't get into it right away, like, poof, gone. Um. There was also, um, you know, they, they made the original albums, but then they put out a few years back a, uh, a Rocketeer Deluxe Edition where they recolored it, you know, top to bottom. And it was after Dave Stevens' death. And I remember in like, in like the, um, in the foreword for it, you know, somebody, somebody who was close to him was saying like, you know, this is what he always wanted. This is what he wanted to see. And, you know, so this is for Dave. And it looks really great, but there's still something about, you know, like we talked about in the in the Killing Joke episode, there's something about old 80s comics coloring. Yeah, that, that classic style. Yeah. You know, it, I understand that the new stuff is technically better and more proficient and, you know, has more consistency. Like, like it's, it's like a, like a, um, um, re- something movie what do they do to movies restore no it's not restored master yeah remastered yes thank you jeez and it's beautiful but there there's something about the format of the old ones that i love but my favorite use in pop culture here it is and i'm sure if if eagle-eared listeners were wondering why i hadn't talked about this yet um here's why do eagles have good ears i don't know probably not like bat-eared Listeners, yeah, bats have good ears, right? I've got good ears, so John if, eared if, listeners. If John eared listeners, uh, <laughs> we're wondering. Um, I've spoken about this in the past when I was talking about the whole influence of Dave Stevens and how he changed my life and how he made me look at at comic book line art differently. Um, so my favorite use in pop culture is absolutely unequivocally the IDW Artists Edition. Of course, yeah. It, so artist editions, if uh, if you haven't been here in the past and you haven't heard me talk about them, they are high quality scans of the original art, color scans, just super, super high definition. So it essentially looks like a big book of the original art. You can see the fading of the pages. You can see correction fluid. You can see straight pencil marks. It is so gorgeous. And it was the first one that I ever owned. Um, my buddy Chris Alvarez that that I would uh, draw comics with for uh, years and years, it's probably been 20 years at this point, maybe a couple of years over that, bought it for me just as, as a gift. And it it changed my mind and and blew my mind and and you know set me off on a on a direction that I've talked about in the past, blah, blah, blah. Um, but to this day, you know, like I've I've got a few artist editions that I've you know, bought and sold and, and some come and go, you know, I, I realize I don't look at them. I will never ever in my life get rid of this artist edition. Cause it is so gorgeous. Just looking at the pages full size, seeing his brush strokes, like it, it is inspirational. So of all the different versions of the comic book, this is without a doubt, my favorite. Does it have, does it have like all the pages of the comic in it? Or is it like just select pages? It is, it is only missing two pages. And 
and two pages why wouldn't they just put the two pages in there i guess they don't exist yeah they can't find it yeah so sometimes idw will do things called artifact editions when they can't find like long runs of of original artwork so they'll just put in like what pieces they can but with artist editions it's usually like big runs and you know incomplete so or i mean fully complete yeah um so with with rocketeer i think since it was you know all but two pages from both like the entirety of rocketeer comic books by dave stevens they just they went for it it was also one of their early ones um but they they put in like stats like reproductions in black and white of the two pages that were missing so you could still read it yeah but at the bottom of the page they put like this is not scanned from the original artwork um but i mean Holy shit, dude. I wonder if he sold those pages at like some, they're in some private collection somewhere. I'm sure they are. Cause I mean, well, with a lot of these things, like they are in private collections, but. Oh, and they track them down. Exactly. Oh, dang. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Scott Dunbeer from, uh, from IDW is a madman. This was his, his pet project and it's, it's great. I, I want them to do more and I want them to do more with more artists that I like. Because there's a lot out there <laughs> with like artists who are legends, but I just I don't want to own them. But if they did like an Art Adams one, holy fucking shit! Like, what are they waiting for? Everybody loves Arthur Adams. Is Do there, one. Is there not an Art Adams? No. Art artist edition. No. Art ad Art Adams edition. <laughs> um, no, that's kind of surprising. It really is, and and the only thing I can guess is that you know he's sold so many of his not extensive you know like he hasn't drawn that many comics compared to other artists who have been doing it as long as him so i I, maybe they're just spread out too much that they can't even get like an artifact edition but i mean i would buy the holy living shit out of that you know jim lee's got like two of them now i've got got the dc jim lee one and one just came out for his x-men work jim lee has drawn a shit ton of stuff yeah (laughs) he's a he keeps himself busy. Yeah. So, I mean, if they can, they can do one for Will Eisner, who, you know, like they, they did two volumes of the spirit and they've got big runs and he was drawing those back in like the forties. Like yeah. Right. That's it's surprising. bonkers. Somebody must've been holding on to them all these years because otherwise it would have been scattered so far into the winds, you know, that, you know, trying to track those down would be tough, but yeah, Rocketeer Artist Edition, absolutely my favorite uh, use in pop culture. I mean, I don't know if that counts as pop culture, but uh, I didn't have anything, so I'm not going to complain. That's totally pop culture. Guess. It's a version of the story in a, in a format that can be consumed by the masses. I, I, I think that fully qualifies. Seems Whatever. like niche culture to me. Oh, well. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there's not a lot of like Rocketeer references. Yeah, there isn't there. a Rocketeer music video. No. There's, I mean, Rocketeer trading cards. How about that? That's my favorite use in pop culture. Was there Rocketeer trading cards? Of course cards? there were. There yeah. was trading cards there's, for everything. Well, it was there. the early 90s. There, it had to have been. Yeah, I still pick up a couple packs every time I see one at a convention. You know, just, just old <laughs> trading cards. Of course I'll pick those up. Or this lovely Sean Chen Rocketeer print I have right here. That that could also be one of my favorites. This thing's gorgeous. It is. I remember... You should frame it. <laughs> yeah, no I'm shit. <laughs> At least it's safe. 
I remember we got this when we were doing Stockton Con, and we were looking across the aisle, and it's just like, who is that guy that just has like a suitcase and a bunch of prints? Like he doesn't even have a banner. Like, what is he doing? And like by the end of the second day, I I um I strolled over there and I was like, oh shit, it's Sean Chen, and he had a Rocketeer print, and it is beautiful. I've been staring at it this whole time. <laughs> Still doing it right now. Mm. Um, okay. Uh, how about some one word review and final thoughts? Yeah, I think it's time for that. You got one? Sure. I made it up, but, uh, I think that awesome. counts. Uh, I went with uh pulperific because <laughs> I think, uh, for not being from that time, you know, from coming from the eighties and not the, you know, 30, forties pulp novel adventure era. It is probably one of the more most faithful or homages that I can think of. Like Indiana Jones is great. I mean, I love Indiana Jones. We did an episode on it. It's true. But go uh, back to the beginning almost. But oh I, wait, no, it was the very first episode, wasn't it? I'm so no, sorry for interrupting. The, you. I think it was the second or third. Was time, time travel, travel was our first? The first? Yeah. Okay. But uh, but it just it it encapsulates everything, at least to me, that pulp adventure was it's got the style it's it's of the you know it seems of the era it's got the kind of the throw logic to the wind you know mindset like mm-hmm. yeah a vase up, upside the head that's gonna knock you out <laughs> yeah you pu- punch a nazi they're gonna fly out a window yeah oh no we're about to die on top of this blimp oh Great! Here comes an airplane with a ladder. Let's jump on that. Like, it's just—it's so just over the top. This is uh, a fun fucking adventure, and we don't care whether or not any of it's sensible. It's th- this is here for you to have a good time with. Shut the fuck up and enjoy it. <laughs> and and it just does it so well. And I think we need more of that. Like I I can't see Disney like making the Rocketeer now. I don't know if they've got that kind of fun left in them. They haven't done anything like that in a long time. Well, weirdly enough, it it does kind of fit in with Joe Johnston's Captain America. Like like that that was probably spiritually more like the Rocketeer than anything else. I mean, but I mean, the Captain America movies have moved away from that. Yeah, you know, that yeah. that's it, the first movie of Captain America and Thor. Like. Those are sort of the outliers. Well, with Thor, we got we had part two that I love, but nobody else does except you. Yeah, I like Dark World. Um, but that was, I, I mean, the first Captain America very much has the spirit of Rocketeer. Yeah, I can see that. It's still not quite as pulpy, I guess. It's not quite as throw caution to the wind, let's have fun. Like, yeah, that's it, fair. It tries to make some sense still. Yeah, and, and the, the stuff that I've heard over the years that hasn't come to fruition probably wouldn't feel the same as the Rocketeer. Like there, there was a sequel that was talked about, about a, uh, a young uh, African-American female finding the rocket pack. Like first there was one that was going to happen like a couple years after the original Rocketeer and Cliff had gone missing fighting the Nazis. Oh. So, you know, th- this young woman was going to find the rocket pack and go. And then I think as as recently as like 2016, there were there was talks once again about uh, about a young female led Rocketeer picture 
but it was in modern times. And then I think there was also one where, where they were talking about the Rocketeers, where it was going to be like a team, maybe. I don't oh, know. But um, I would love to see it happen. I remember back in, uh, in it was probably about 2000, because it was just as we were graduating high school and right before I moved to Utah, um, I had I wanted to do a Rocketeer comic book that re- that uh, that revived it. It was going to be in modern times, and it was going to be like the grandson of Cliff Secord. Finds it in an attic or something. Yeah, I mean, Cliff Secord was still alive, just a super old man. And I remember, like, I, I know I have a sketch pad somewhere of a bunch of these designs where, you know, with old man Cliff and, you know, his young grandson, you know, probably my age at the time because that's who I related to. Um, but I remember he was going to have like a silver helmet instead, and it was going to be like, you know, a slick black leather jacket, um, but still the same like aesthetic. I probably drew him in, in boots that had like a toe cover, like Converse, like I always do. But, uh, I don't know for sure. Big high top leather Converse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like knee high leather Converse. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I would love nothing more than to see something happened with the rocketeer and uh, you know it i would love to see a a classic you know sequel or or a retelling of of the rocketeer but i'd take what i can get you know the rocketeer is something that that you know he is kind of niche like like you were saying about the pop culture reference where it's like there aren't such strong ties where it's not open to interpretation you know yeah. like it's hard to fuck with somebody like superman or batman but with the Rocketeer, like, let's let's tell some interesting stories with this character, you know, that, that doesn't have, there's not enough Rocketeer. You know, yeah, like, let's yeah. make more, please. Yeah, exactly. Um, my one word review, I just, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to have to kind of phone it in this time. I was, I'm, I'm having a rough time with my brain. I'm going with high flying because just everything about the Rocketeer and comic books and the movies, like everything is just about the feeling of soaring and the feeling of launching from the ground up into the air and just feeling the wind like even something as simple as their art deco poster from the first one that we talked about like i want that poster so bad i'm shocked i don't have one that probably should have been my favorite use in pop culture like as you were talking about i was like you know that might do it because that poster is beautiful it is so gorgeous and like i bought one once from like an off-brand dealer and it came in all pixely and stupid oh like they took a screenshot or like downloaded it off the internet and just printed it out yeah printed it out bigger than it could that's happened to me more times than i even want to admit gross um yeah it was stupid but like everything about that just has a feeling of flight and speed and and yeah i guess a word like classic could also fit maybe i should have done that instead you know like it's it's got that feel like there there's just a feeling uh that the rocketeer gives you that not much else does and you know like in the in the early 90s they were trying you know they did the shadow and they did the phantom they did dick tracy yeah and and those just didn't quite cut it i still love dick tracy i've been thinking about wanting to watch that I, i remember dick tracy being rather good yeah i think it did fairly well too uh, I think critically it didn't do well. I think it, I mean, it made its, oh no, I think financially it didn't do well either. Oh, really? Actually. Yeah. yeah. But I think it did win an Oscar for makeup or, oh, yeah. or makeup costume design or something. Yeah. yeah. Like Lothar, he looks like a Dick Tracy. Villain. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, Paul Sorvino was in that too. 
Oh, However was. briefly, his lips manless. Yeah. Ugh. That's why I can't eat oysters. <laughs> his lips manless, just, just slurping them up. Gross. Mm, oysters are delicious. Oh, I, I can't do it. Um, but yeah, high flying, whatever. So thank you folks for uh, strapping on your rocket packs and, uh, and soaring through this episode with us. Uh, if you want to let us know how we did today, hit us up. Uh, you can email us at email at geeksplorationpodcast.com. You can find us on the social medias, uh, Facebook, Geeksploration the Podcast, Instagram at Geeksploration Podcast, or Twitter at Geeksplore Pod. You can also call us at 916-ORC-TURD. That is 916-O-R-C-T-U-R-D. And if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, head on over to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser and leave us a uh, five wads of bubblegum review. Uh, we also have uh, merch available at shop.geeksplorationpodcast.com. And our theme song, as always, is Cruising for Goblins by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. And remember, the son of a bitch will fly. <laughs> <laughs>